I really liked the sessions. I didn't feel like it was difficult for me to pay attention. You know, it was, it was very relevant to things that I feel like I'm going to need in the future. And maybe I hadn't thought about that skill set, but it's going to be very useful. And I, I, you know, I really appreciate the programming. So we always kind of put, keep that frame of mind when we're thinking about what topics to cover in these sessions, like what's going to be, what, what skills do these people need to be successful in their careers that they're not going to maybe get at their residency program? Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of the things I've learned in working with pathology residents is how early they have to start applying for fellowships. And this is often before they've had a chance to experience all the pathology subspecialties. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Herman. Dr. Herman is going to tell us about her new role as the chair of the CAP Residence Forum, as well as the paper she co-authored about the pathology fellowship application crisis. She also has a very inspiring story about her experience with the residency match. All right. Here's Dr. Amanda Herman. So the place where I want to start with you, uh, we're going to go all the way back to undergrad. Okay. All right. Now you now there you studied microbiology, chemistry, and botany. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, all right. Let, let's start with the botany part because that seems to be kind of the... That's kind of the, the oddball out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Well, um, so as part of like the micro degree at, uh, at OU, so I did University of Oklahoma is where I did undergrad. The botany and the microbiology department are all housed in the same building. And a lot of the classes kind of overlap, you know, some of those basic science classes. Um, and so when I was looking at the requirements for a botany minor, I did a minor, it's not a major. A lot of the classes kind of lined up and they qualified. And so it was only going to be like two or three extra classes to get a botany minor. And I was in the building anyway. And so I was like, oh, well, let's just tack that on. It'll, it'll be fine. And the same thing kind of went with um, chemistry. I had so many of those, you know, biochem classes for doing med school and they were all just kind of there and it was only going to be a few extra. And so I just did them. And Okay. That makes sense. I mean, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to take some kind of class, so might as well. Yeah, earn, exactly. Earn like, minor. Might as well tack on a minor. So, um, and some of those classes were actually really useful. I think my hardest class in undergrad was a chemistry class. It was called analytical chemistry. And you know, when oh, you sure. take. Yeah, like, you know, when you take chemistry classes, and you know, they don't really care about how, you know, how well the experiment is done, as long as you understand the concepts behind it, like for the lab part, well, in analytical, and uh-huh. analytical chemistry, they actually do care that you get the right answer at the end and the right amount or, you know, with the, the, the accuracy of the experiment is actually really important. And that was the only class that, in, you know, only lab that I've ever taken where that's been a component to the, of the grade is how accurate you are with your results at the end. So, um, okay. yeah, that was interesting. Okay. All right. And then, and so also during undergrad, you did uh, research work in microbiology, which was your major. So can, can you tell me about that research? Sure. So in the realm of microbiology research, it, it can get pretty fundamental, right? I mean, microorganisms are a great tool for studying very, basic fundamental science. But I, I knew that with the, when I got into a research lab, I, I wanted something that was actually going to maybe touch a patient one day or, you know, affect somebody, you know, medically someday. Yeah. So I found the one lab at OU that was doing that. And they studied uh, a strain of E. coli called 0157. 
Um, and it's the one that makes you, uh, that is, you know, really affects you, affects patients, right? It's the, uh, yeah. the, the GI one, right? right. Um, and so they were looking at this specific strain of E. coli and how it metabolizes different sugars in the intestinal system. And they saw that it actually chooses to metabolize different sugars than, say, like one of the you know, commensal strains. And that was actually given an advantage to, you know, kind of take over and have it find a niche and be able to infect people. So uh, they were they were looking at sugar metabolism, which is still pretty fundamental, but it was still a strain that was in patients and that was affecting people and that, you know, this this research that we were doing may have an impact about, you know, how we maybe treat it one day, that kind of thing. So that was the lab that I picked. It was three years. It was very tedious, but I got to do some mouse work and that was a good, you know, experience to be able to do that. I got put on a paper for it, but yeah, you know, it was just kind of a side, (laughs) a side gig during uh, undergrad, Mm -hmm. Um, but it really exposed me to the lab for the first time. That was the first time that I had been in a research lab at all. I didn't do anything in high school. I really liked that environment, you know, got to do the autoclave, got to do the cultures, got to do all that stuff. So kind of got me started. Sure, sure. I can understand that. I mean, I, I remember microbiology class or uh, the lab back in back in college too. And that was probably one of the most interesting lab classes of, of probably my whole time in college. Mm-hmm. So sounds like that was a really good experience. Now, were, were you intending at the time to have some kind of a future in the field of microbiology? I think I, I don't know. I think I got started early and then I was like, well, I'm in it. I might as well just finish this. But I, I think, I think I, I, it was advised to me. Um, I mean, I saw the, the people that I were working with were all PhDs, like straight PhDs. And um, I could just, just tell it was a very stressful life. It was a very stressful job. Um, because with PhD work and, you know, d- not having that clinical component where you can go and be a doctor, like a, a, a clinician, your entire livelihood is reliant on grants, right? And that can be very, very stressful. So um, it was a real struggle for me when I got to the end of my undergrad, like, what do I do? Do I go straight PhD? I really like the research. I really see myself doing more research, but you know, is this, is this all I want to do? Um, or is there another component? And I, I kind of came back to two things. You know, I, th- I think I'm kind of a people person and I really thought maybe medicine could be a good fit for me. And another thing was I, I had a friend that was one year, one or two years ahead of me in, in school and she was doing MD PhD and she kind of explained her reasoning for why she took that that track and it made a lot of sense to me so I kind of started to see myself in that dual degree type program Um, so the PhD work was kind of always there for me I knew I wanted to keep going with research and um, that made sense but the MD part was new and so that was something that I had to kind of think about pretty critically at the end of uh, at the end of undergrad Mm-hmm. You know, that's so interesting to me. Like, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I always thought that people had this sort of grand plan that, you know, going through high school or whatever, and I was going to become a doctor and this is the kind of doctor I was going to become. And as I've been doing this podcast, I find that that's rarely the case. Oh no, we all fall into it by accident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, 
Right. That's what I've discovered. It's that's like the longer that I've kind of, you know, and the more people I talk to, obviously, Dennis, um, and the longer that I've kind of been around and in this world is, you know, I, I, I'm not a very spiritual person at all, but I really feel like there's some kind of grand plan and we're all just like cogs in a wheel, like, you know, just, just, you know, just go with the flow. The universe will figure it, figure it out for you kind of thing. Because I, I, in a million years, if you had asked me at the end of undergrad, Hey, are you going to be, um, you know, a pathology resident with an MD PhD going into blood banking one day? And I was like, what the heck is that? Like, no, no, what are you talking about? No way. But I feel like I'm in, you know, the, the exact place where I'm supposed to be. And it's just kind of weird how people end up where they're supposed to be. Yeah, oh, that's definitely true. Okay. All right. So you decide you're going to go, go MD, PhD route. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, you got interested in dermatology. I did. Okay. How did, did that happen? Well, um, so I took a year off in between undergrad and MD, PhD because I hadn't taken the MCAT yet. So that, that last minute decision to go to med school, um, you know, it's, it takes time to get those applications together, do all the testing and stuff. So I sure. took a year off. I worked as a lab tech, actually, uh, at Baylor at a, in a research lab, more research, different different area of microbiology research. And then um, so I got into MD-PhD at, at UT Houston and DERM. When did I start liking DERM? So I got through all the way. So at UT, we have kind of a unique MD-PhD program. We do three years of medical school and then we go into the lab and then we come back for the fourth year. And the reason we do that is because without having kind of like a clinical basis for when you go into the lab, you're still just kind of like that straight and that straight PhD student. And so what we like to do is we give our PhD trainees like a year of clinical experience to kind of ground them in the research that you're doing this. These are the patients that you're going to be affecting, you know, kind of give that clinical, clinical switch, you know, clinical tie to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't actually do much derm during that third year, but, uh, I knew that I had liked my surgery rotation, not so much like <laughs> the people on surgery. I, I'm not a surgeon by any means. Um, but I did like the procedure part of it and kind of the hands-on type, you know, type part of it. And yeah. so I thought procedure, you know, some sort of procedure oriented specialty might be good for me. And then when I went and did my PhD, my PhD is in immunology and immunology is like a huge component of dermatology, right? I mean, you have all of these autoimmune diseases, all of these, you know, and, you know, immunologic based you know, dermatoses and things like that. So, you know, when I was at the end of my PhD, I was like, well, what kind of, what kind of specialty will tie a little bit of procedure, a little bit of patient care? Because I knew I wanted to still see patients, but maybe not primary care, <laughs> level, you know, uh, not, not everyday clinic, everyday, all patients, all day, every day. So I thought DERM would give me a good, you know, mix of the things that I liked about clinical medicine. So that's, that's kind of where, I, that's why I thought it might be a good fit for me. Thought. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Now, but going through medical school, mm -hmm. I'm always curious about like the, the person's first exposure to pathology and what kind of effect that might've had on you. Right. So <laughs> you you would think that I had this like magical exposure and it was just like the most incredible three weeks. So I did a three week elective during my third year of medical school. So we only get one elective during the third year. 
Okay. And then you're supposed to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life, which I think is bananas, right? Uh, there's there's so many specialties in medicine that you just don't get exposed to during medical school. And I think it's a travesty that we're expecting people to go into these fields when they don't even have the opportunity to see them. But I digress. I did do the pathology elective. It was a three-week elective. Um, I got kind of a smattering of different aspects of pathology. I got to gross a gallbladder, <laughs> you know, oh, cool. and learn how to dig. Yeah, you know, so it was, and we had great PAs that were, um, we have some great PAs here. I love the work that you guys do. You really do bring pathology to life for um, for all the trainees. Um, but we Thank had you. A, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, they are a, you guys are a critical component to not only our education, but, you know, just the whole process. So it starts with you. And I, I, I have immense respect for the work that you guys do. Um, but we had a, we had a great PA that, you know, was very much into train, you know, teaching. She really liked to teach and she taught me how to do a gallbladder. And I thought that was really cool. Not because it was a gallbladder, but just, you know, like this is the process, you know, this is a very humdrum specimen, but she made it exciting and she could let me dictate and, um, all of that. But I think, you know, I don't know. I, I had like kind of mixed feelings about the rotation. I, I liked what I saw, but I'm just, I don't know if I saw myself in that realm. And that may have been because a lot of it was AP and I like AP, but I, I mean, I'm going into blood banking. So that's the realm, that's an area of pathology that I've just like, didn't really ever see myself. So maybe I just didn't see enough during those three weeks to like, you know, inspire me to go into it. But um, I had seen enough that like, hey, I, I was comfortable with kind of what pathology was. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know, it was there in the background. But I think going through my PhD, I kind of had different ideas of where I might fit um, in the realm of clinical medicine. Okay, okay. Well, let's let's talk about that now then, because then you, you, um, intended to go on into dermatology and, and you applied to, to residency. I, I think especially this time of year, this story might be relevant for a lot of listeners. So can we kind of go through your story? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, I came back from my PhD. I, you know, I, I had all these derm projects, you know, I was essentially being told like, Hey, you know, you are an amazing, you're a great candidate you got 10 interviews, you know, you're, you're going to match, you're going to match Derm. And then, you know, I opened that NRMP letter and it's like, nope, sorry, you didn't match. And I'm like, what, what, wow. <laughs> um, what do I do now? You know, like, uh, this was completely unexpected. Right. And, you know, mm -hmm. even the mentors that I had been working with, with, they were like, I don't know what happened. They reached out to the people, you know, that, had interviewed me and they were like, you know, what happened? What happened? Um, and nobody could really figure out what happened. It just, the numbers didn't work and I didn't match. So I kind of reassessed. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, where do I, what do I do now? Am I still going to go for it? I, you know, I don't have a job this next year, but I'm going to keep, keep moving on, moving on. And so I decided to reapply for Derm, but I also decided to do a backup, which, you know, I think that's, I don't know. I think there's a lot of people with mixed feelings about people applying pathology backup. And I was almost, I was very nervous about putting my story out there because I think I'm one of those, I think I'm one of those people that 
pathologists kind of look, not looked down on, but just are trying to get away from because pathology has been kind of a, a backup for a long time now. Right. I mean, yeah. we want people to get into pathology because they like pathology, but in reality, you know, reality is there's a lot of people that use it as a backup. So, um, and I was, <laughs> and I was one of them. So I was, I was actually really nervous about putting my story out there, but it is such a common story. And I think people need to hear it. <laughs> so if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does make sense. And I, I think that is a good story. And especially the fact that you, okay, you didn't match, but you decided, all right, I'm going to come back from this and, and try it again. And then you happen to find a different specialty that maybe was better suited for you. Oh, for sure. Yes. Um, and so I, I ended up reapplying, I ended up matching into my home program, which was nice. I was, I was happy about that. I, I didn't have to move. I was used to the computers, um, you know, all of that, but I, you know, I, I can't, I won't lie. I was a little, I was nervous about getting into pathology, not because I didn't know what it was, but I re- had really wanted to start a specialty where I could actually see some patients. And I had no idea that there are realms in pathology where you could actually still see patients. And so I continued and I was like, oh, okay, I'm in path. This is what I'm going to do now. I'm a bloom where you're planted type person. I'm going to make the best of the situation where I'm at. And I'm, I'm going to make the most of this. So, I, you know, I jumped in feet first into pathology and it's been such a wonderful experience for me. And that's why, I, that's why I'm so passionate about getting, you know, more people interested in pathology because it's, it's, it's such a hidden gem in medicine. So. Um, right. Yeah. I've heard that. I've heard that particular uh, phrase lots of times. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now, all right, you're going into pathology residency, and it seems like since you had the Durham interest, that maybe Durham path would be. Uh, you think, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about subspecialties. Which ones? Which ones did you like? So I did like Durham path. Okay. I, I think I liked it. I like it as a, you know, just because I like it. But I also think I liked it because it was comfortable for me. I did, you know, a couple of Durham path rotations in medical school to kind of get ready for that Durham application, um, and so it was a it was a realm of pathology that I think is, it's not a very, it's not a comfort space for a lot of people because they don't get exposure to it, but I had some previous exposure. And so it wasn't, it wasn't too uncomfortable. I I recognized some of the terms and that kind of thing. But when I started looking at getting into that for fellowship, I mean, you have to start so early for fellowship, which is, I think we're going to get into that, right? Uh, Yeah. 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 We're going to get into that. But, um, you have to start so early and, you know, even in just in the pathology realm, Derm is still super competitive. And by the time I decided like, Hey, maybe you, maybe I will try Derm path. Um, I already felt like I was behind and I didn't like it enough that I wanted to go through that whole super competitive, everything must be perfect process again. And I had found blood bank, which I think I like. I had decided that I liked better. So I just kind of put put Durham Path behind. I still really like it. You know, if people people want to hire me and you know sign out skins, I'm totally fine with that. I don't mind looking at skin biopsies at all. But I I, I don't like it enough to do a, a whole fellowship for it. Okay, I see. Yeah, Durham is. Um, it, if, I feel like you know, pathology's got its own sort of language, and Durham. Derm path has its other has kind of a yeah. separate separate language uh-huh. also there's so much more to it 
Yes. Okay. All right. So speaking of that, though, tell me about transfusion medicine and blood bank. Like, how did you, in, in reading your your story, it seems like this was another one of those like light bulb moments where you're like, as soon as you were exposed to it, you're like, yes, this is it. Like, t- tell me about tell me about this experience. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, our program is really good at trying to at least expose residents to as many of the different subspecialties as they can before they have to start applying for fellowship. I mean, we do the best we can, but there's still some that we don't get exposed to until the last year. And unless you're interested in it, you really have to to fight to get that time. But Mm -hmm. blood bank, we do a lot of blood bank in our first and second years because we take call, right? And so we need to know, (laughs) we need to know how to handle those calls. So they, they put us on our blood bank rotations pretty early when we start residency. And I, I realized that blood bank really has everything for me. You know, we have a pretty decent apheresis service here at UT. And so we see patients, which is very cool. I did not think pathologists saw patients at all. And it's pretty, pretty cool that you can see a patient. Um, we have a decent sickle cell population here in Houston. And so we they come in for their red cell exchanges every six to eight weeks. And so you get you get that patient interaction and then you get to see them again and you, and you get to see them again. And, you know, you, you build this relationship that I didn't think was going to be possible with pathology. And another part of blood bank that I like, I like serology, right. Doing the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the screens and all of the antibody testing. Um, mm-hmm. cause my PhD is in immunology and I actually did a lot of antibody work in my PhD. So antibodies make a lot of sense to me. I really understand and appreciate like how they work in the body and seeing that on paper and how that, how those antibodies like affect a patient and, you know, just, just seeing that manifest itself in a, in a field of clinical medicine, I, I I really, really liked. And I, I think I, what, what solidified it for me was a lot of people get really scared of those serology panels that like huge page of pluses and minuses. And I love them. They're just like a puzzle that I want to figure out. And I'm not scared of them at all. I really like them. Um, and so that that kind of pointed me towards like, hey, maybe blood bank would be okay for you because a lot of people hate this, but you really like it. So maybe you should just do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like it's a perfect fit for you. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Amanda Herman. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there's one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just ordered a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, so I'm looking forward to trying those out. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now, back to Dr. Amanda Herman on the People of Pathology podcast. You know, something you said a little while ago, the fact that pathologists can see patients, and that's something that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, you, you mentioned it just now in 
mm-hmm. in, in transfusion medicine and apheresis, but also I think cytopathology has yeah. mm-hmm. a bit of that also. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem, you know, for those, the medical students that do want to continue seeing patients, like they should know that pathology has that aspect to it. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, like my, uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know if you know, my husband's a radiologist. Um, okay. And so, you know, he, he's also one of those types of, you know, doctors that likes to kind of be behind the scenes, but he's also, he also likes procedures, right? And they do, you know, he's not interventional radiology, but he's a, he's a musculoskeletal radiologist. So they do joint injections. They do little procedures. You know, it's enough to still ground you that you're a clinician and you're, you're a doctor, you're a clinician. You may not be like a, a full-time patient-facing doctor, but you still have those skills and you're still still able to, you know, provide care for patients. And I think pathology offers such a good mix, you know, a good proportion of you know, forward-facing patient care versus consultant work. It's a, it's a perfect balance for me. Um, it's just enough to keep me grounded in clinical medicine, but it's not enough to really burn me out and, you know, make me start resenting patient care. So, um, I wish people really understood that a little bit more about pathology. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think that'd be very helpful for a lot of uh, not only medical students, but probably Mm -hmm. just the general public. And I think people have this misunderstanding that pathologists sit quietly in an office all day, (laughs) which is not true at all. Right. I mean, you know, this, uh, we get called by surgeons, we could, we do tumor boards, we, talk to you know we some people are starting to talk to patients about their reports so yeah um you know we we are communicators and you know our our entire profession and the success of what we do is how well we communicate so i i wish i wish we could get that out there better yeah yeah me too totally agree so then following residency you're going to be doing a fellowship in transfusion medicine I am. Yes. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm nervous, but excited. <laughs> okay. So, uh-huh. so I, I want to talk about uh, fellowships from uh, mm-hmm. for, a while, for a while now, because well, you were one of the authors on, on a paper about fellowships, and this was called right. The Pathology Fellowship Application Crisis, The Current State and Suggestions for Remediation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this was part, or this came out of a work group by the Amer- uh, Association of Pathology chairs graduate medical education committee Mm -hmm. all right so let's start at the beginning of that how did you get involved with this project so okay apc uh apc is a uh i love working with apc it's a great group of people they're they're all very passionate about uh you know academic pathology and resident training and things so what got me started with apc i won an award to go to their annual meeting um, and the ward was recommended by a faculty member at my institution. They said, oh, you should apply for this. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people apply. I don't know if it's a very well-known award. But um, so I won it. And they paid for, my, you know, my participation in the meeting. Unfortunately, the year I won was the year that COVID started. So everything turned virtual. So I never actually got to meet a lot of these people in person. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. I know, right? <laughs> COVID just threw everything for a loop. It's yeah. been so surreal. I went to the first. So I went to to the APC meeting this, this July in person. And I had been working with one of their staff for almost, I guess, over two years now. And we had never met in person. It was crazy. It was like surreal to meet this person um, in person. But anyway, 
So I won this award. I went to their annual meeting. And if you win one of these awards, they kind of start, they, they want you to stay involved after the meeting. And so they put you on, um, they let you come and you know participate in some of the committees, right? So I, I chose GME, graduate medical education. I'm like, I'm a resident. I should have something to say about this. Uh, and at their first meeting, they were talking about fellowships and they were like, well, you know, uh, people are complaining. Uh, and I was like, well, I can tell you my experience because at the time I was a second year resident about to be a third year resident. And I'm like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be applying for fellowship. I feel completely not unprepared, but like, I really don't want to make this decision right now. I have only, I'm only halfway through residency. I have not seen everything. How do I know that I don't want to be a pediatric pathologist? I'm not going to see pediatric pathology till my fourth year. You know, maybe this is, this is another one of those missed opportunities that, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just not ready to make that decision right now. And I told that to them at the meeting. I said, this is, this is how we're feeling right now. I'm, I'm a representative resident. I'm here to tell you we hate that we have to decide so early. And we also hate that the applications are not standardized. It's very time consuming and tedious to put fellowship applications together because everyone has their own application. They're all asking the same thing, but they're all in a different format. And also the timelines are so different between all the different programs and the information that the programs put out sometimes isn't accurate. And it's just, it's such a disorganized process and it's not helpful to people applying. And so I told that to them at the meeting and they were like, okay, well, we need to do something about this. And they could tell that I was very, not upset, but just like, hey, this is a problem and you have a resident here that is willing to help you fix it. And they jumped and they jumped on that. And so that's kind of what happened with the paper is we talked about what data we need, you know, how do we know the residents are unhappy? There really wasn't anything out there. So I built a survey and we sent it out to as many residents as we could get it to. And that, you know, that data came back and ever, you know, it just solidified what I was telling them that people are really unhappy with the process that's happening right now. And then at, from there, you know, some of the more senior members of the group were like, okay, well, how do we fix this? And those were some of the recommendations that came out from the paper. Okay. Yeah. The, the place where I've been working for the last almost five years now, now so I, I'm working now with pathology residents for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over these few years, I have noticed that, yeah, the, the timeline that where they have to apply for fellowships is very early. And I was always really confused about that. I mean, I don't know anything about the process, but it, it, it seemed very surprising to me that it was, you know, like you said, second year or early third year that yeah. they had to apply for It's these like things. 18 months in that people have yeah. to start thinking about it. And it's, you know, and what's really unfortunate is some of the programs, you know, just the way that they schedule their residents, they do like one year of AP and one year of CP or, you know, they, they don't have it mixed. And so some residents don't even get exposed to a lot of CP or AP, however they, you know, however your program organizes it. So they don't even know what they like because they haven't even been exposed to it. And, you know, it's just from the outside. I mean, I'm sure that the timelines have been creeping earlier and earlier for a reason. I think it's just because people, you know, they want the best and they think if they get there, if they 
get their people the earliest that they can, that they're going to get the best. But mm, okay. um, it's just not, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, why do you need to have that lined up two years in advance? Why? <laughs> right. <I'm, laughs> so, that seems like a lot of time to change your mind. Exactly. Exactly. And then people feel like they're, they're tied into this thing this position that, you know, maybe is not going to be the best, best fit for them anymore, but then you don't want to be unprofessional and cancel, but that happens more frequently than it should. Right. Um, you know, people's lives change, you know, oh, my husband got a job. Now I can't, you know, now I can't go to Cleveland and train because, you know, my husband's going to be in San Francisco, you know, um, it, it, life happens and it's hard. It's so hard to plan your life two years in advance. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we just wanted to air out the grievances, let people know, Hey, you know, residents have a problem with this. I don't know how we're going to fix it, but, um, it is a real problem. So mm-hmm. I'm glad the paper came out. I am, I'm glad that, that we at least are trying to civilize the process a little bit. I'm not, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to move the timeline a little bit and let give people a little bit more time to decide. But at least um, I'm happy with the first start where we're at least trying to standardize the timeline for applications because that was that was a, a big problem, right? You know, like MD Anderson wants their applications in April, but nobody, everybody else is getting them in July. But then, you know, it's just so confusing and. Mm-hmm. Um, a standardized timeline was we thought would be the best first place to start to get everybody kind of on the same page. Okay. Now, is that, is that, is that sort of process, has that started? I mean, has there been any pushback from any of the programs that, that, that you've heard of about changing that? Um, so it has started. We did, we did try it this year. Um, so some of the other specialties in pathology have already started doing that. Um, so cytopathology has been on a standardized timeline for at least a year or two now. Uh, forensics went to a match. So they're completely like, you know, like on their own timeline, essentially. But and okay. are, yeah, but they're on a match system now. And I think informatics is on a match now, too. But the other specialties, I mean, it's like Wild West out there. You know, you do what you want, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And so what the big push for this fellowship season, application season, has been is to try and get as many programs and as many specialties as we can to agree to this common timeline. And um, I can't remember the exact percentage of programs. We got a decent number enough to get some data about how well it's going to work. And it's, we're, we're kind of in the thick of the season right now. Um, so offers and offers went out in, you know, mid October, I think. So we're hopefully done with all of like the matching and stuff. Uh, but we're going to send out a survey to people and see kind of like how it went this year. And if it went well, that'll just be leveraged to get more people to participate in the coming years. So. Okay, that makes sense. So this is kind of an ongoing process. It, it wasn't it just is. like. It is, and what's what's the the problem is is the, there's really no governing body to make sure people play by the rules, and that's been kind of one of the problems with us at APC is like, well, how how do we not how do we punish the people that say they're going to do one thing and then they don't? You know, how are we going to leverage people playing by the rules? And that's been one of the things that we just talk about constantly and 
not really sure if there's a good answer for that because the good thing with the, you know, with like a match or NRMP is like you have an outside governing body, right? You have NRMP that makes sure that, hey, you sign this contract, you're going to participate in the match, you have to follow these rules. But we don't really have that unless, you know, we don't really have that for APC. It's just kind of, oh, you say you're going to do this, please play by the rule type thing. Mm, okay. Okay. But I mean, I guess it, it is comforting to know that, that something is being done, that people are looking at this and recognizing that it is a problem. Yes. So that's yes. yes. And, it, and and this is not specific to pathology. I mean, other specialties have this. I mean, I think even in the paper, it mentions radiology. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, you know, my husband's a radiologist. So, right. you know, he's okay. my he's my sounding yeah. board for what, what happens in other specialties. So, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> So the next thing I wanted to talk about is you you were recently elected uh, chair of the the CAP residence forum. I was at the at just this past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was just a month ago. Uh-huh. Not, not even. Mm-hmm. All right, tell me tell me about the the residence forum. What what is this, and then how did you get involved with it? So the residence forum, um, it's the kind of the trainee section of CAP. We put on our own programming. We have kind of our own meeting. We have, we put two meetings on a year. We have one that's affiliated with CAP, like the annual meeting. And then we do another meeting in the spring that is affiliated with US CAP. So we, you know, have a companion meeting because we know residents are traveling to those meetings to present stuff. So, you know, if you're going to be in that city, might as well come to the residence forum. And what we like to do at the residence forum meetings are present sessions that you wouldn't really find at a typical academic pathology meeting. Like we like to present on the soft skills of pathology. And by that, we mean communication, how to navigate, you know, professional relationships, financial planning. What is, what are different practice settings? You know, those kinds of things that you maybe wouldn't get at say US cap. And so uh, the idea of the residence forum is just kind of a home base within CAP for trainees and residents, residents, fellows, medical students, medical students kind of have their own, have their own official membership category now. So we're hoping to build that out, that space out for them within CAP. But at least for now, the medical students have been part of kind of the resident forum community uh, so far. Well, I I like the idea of that, that it concentrates on the soft skills because I think those are becoming more and more important. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's, that's really a good idea. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I think we get a lot of good response, you know, um, after the meetings, people, you know, fill out their surveys and, you know, if if you're going to, you know, if you come to one of our meetings, we really appreciate you to fill out the survey afterwards because, you know, we want to put on programming that you're going to, you know, that is useful to you. And we always get feedback like, Hey, I really liked the sessions. I didn't feel like it was difficult for me to pay attention. You know, it was, it was very relevant to things that I feel like I'm going to need in the future. And maybe I hadn't thought about that skill set, but it's going to be very useful. And I, I, you know, I really appreciate the programming. So we always kind of put, keep that frame of mind when we're thinking about what topics to cover in these sessions, like what's going to be, what, what skills do these people need to be successful in their careers that they're not going to maybe get at their residency program? And how can we how can we facilitate and you know supplement that? Mm, okay, I like that. That's good. All right, and so as we mentioned, you were recently elected chair of the residence forum. Now I'm curious. Then this position, 
well, first of all, what is it going to do? What what do you think it's going to do for you professionally? But also, I want to know, like, what does it mean to you personally? Oh, I'm so excited. So I was last year, I was member at large, which if you're going to apply for a CAP resident forum executive committee position, it's kind of the best one because you get to go to all the meetings, but uh, there's not a huge time commitment and there's not a huge like expectation to, um, you know, like there's not a lot of deliverables. So it was kind of like, a, okay. I felt like a fly on the wall for the last year or so, just kind of seeing how the committee operates, what kind of projects they're doing you know, participating where I wanted to, uh, and you know, that kind of thing. So I I had a great year as member at large last year, and we started a few projects within the committee. And I was like, I I really want to make sure that these projects keep going. And the best person to do that is me. (laughs) So I ran for chair and I got it, which was very exciting, very honoring. I'm so glad People think uh, have so much confidence in me <laughs> to lead this group, mm-hmm. but um, I don't know. I, mean, I don't think I answered your question, but no, it, it kind of did. As far as what it's what it, uh, you know, kind of it, how it personally affects you. Is this going to have an effect on your career? Like, is this something that people would see on like a, a CV or something? And does that oh. does that mean something? Like, you know what I mean? Um, well, not having you know been a you know a career pathologist quite yet i i'm pretty sure it will (laughs) i think people recognize this position as you know a leadership position and you actually get to sit on the cap board of you know board of governors uh you're like an ex officio member so you get to go to all Mm -hmm. the board meetings with president of cap and they know your name and um you kind of you get to be a, a face for residents for a year and people know, you know, you're the contact point for this group of group of trainees, which is a huge honor and a huge responsibility. And I think people recognize that um, and recognize the work that goes into this position. And I think it will. I'm. I I know it will take me places in the future, but it's also a, a huge honor, and I'm I'm very excited to like work for these people and you know do this position do this work. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can tell in your voice, you, you sound excited. Now, is this kind of, I don't want to say, is it assumed, but I, I get maybe that is the word that you'll a, after, you know, residency fellowship that you'll continue with the, the CAP in some capacity. Is this kind of a transition position into that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, the thing with CAP is like, once you I always say this at, at the meetings. I'm sure people have heard it. It's like, once you, once you drink like the CAP Kool-Aid, like you're in it, you're there. Like you, you see the value, <laughs> you see okay. the value, right? Like you're, you've been indoctrinated, right? Um, but in a good way. In a great way, right? Okay. We need more people to do this. You know, I, and that's, that's what I was so excited about for the annual meeting. This time I met a ton of medical students and people who had, who are coming to the meeting for the first time. I think COVID had, like put a really big damper on our recruitment of younger people just because we like, we didn't have meetings, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to reach people through Zoom and to show excitement for CAP through a webcam. Uh, but we had so many people come to the, to the meeting this last, you know, the couple of weeks ago and they just saw the excitement that people have for CAP and all of the things that CAP can offer them and what they can do for the, you know, the, 
the field of pathology and they got so excited about it. And I was like, this is what we like, this is, this is, this is my goal, right? I just, I want people to get excited about serving their profession. How do you convince other pathology residents, uh, even medical students, like that they should get involved with CAP and kind of show them all the, the good things that CAP is doing? So I think people, I think trainees are just so ingrained in like learning pathology, learning all of those tumor you know, classifications, just learning the base, you know, the, the actual practice of pathology, but they don't understand or appreciate like how much work goes into, okay, you have your diagnosis, like what happens next? You put your report out there. Well, okay, well, how are you going to get paid for that report? Like how, how are they going to pay you for those services? How do you represent yourself with legislators who honestly have no idea what pathology is? I did a Hill Day once and I was talking with the staffer and I was like, okay, well, I'm a pathology resident. They're like, oh, pathology, like that means that you, you know, are, are in the lab, like that you are looking at my biopsy or something. I was like, yeah, well, that's part of it. But we, you know, this, is, this was during COVID and we're like, well, we're the ones that made sure that your COVID tests were accurate. We're the right. ones that every single lab test that gets run on your sample is accurate and can be trusted and that it's validated. And she like, they have no, people have no idea the other work that pathologists do. Mm-hmm. And it's so critical for people who are in pathology to get that message out there because that's how that's how we're going to make sure that people understand the work that we do and the importance of the work that we do and that they're going to, you know, respect that work and then they're going to pay us for it. Right. I mean, we're I'm not going to pretend that, you know, we're all out there, you know, volunteering our time. I mean, we, we work. We need to get paid for the work that we do. And our work is critical to the entire other you know, realm of medicine, right? I mean, internal medicine cannot operate without the lab. So, you know, surgeons cannot operate without the lab. I mean, uh, we are, we are the crux point. We are the crucial point in most clinical, other clinical specialties, and we should be respected for that position and we should get paid for it. And the only way we're going to, you know, the only way that's going to happen is if we get our position out there, tell people what we do, tell people about the important work that we do, um, and it needs to start early. Trainees have a lot of energy, right? I mean, I have a lot of energy, but you know, tra- <laughs> yeah. training, trainees have a lot of energy. They are at the forefront. I mean, they're the, the boots on the ground for a lot of these processes. And if they can share their point of view and their story and you know, their excitement for about what they're doing, I mean, that really resonates with people who are not in pathology. So I always try to encourage people, you know, PLS, like the Pathologist Leadership Summit through CAP is an awesome event. You get to learn a ton about the work that CAP is doing with legislators and like advocating for our specialty. And then you also get to do a Hill Day, which is really fun. If you've never done one, they're they're a trip. Um, They're a trip, but they're so important. And Mm -hmm. I think I think people get a little bit not nervous, but just maybe a little anxious about meeting with legislators. But once you've done one, you realize it's not that big of a deal and um, they really just do want to hear from you. And it's a it's an opportunity to talk about yourself and the work that you do. So um, that's how I, I, I wish we got that message out to trainees better. And that's one of the things I want to try and push for this year as chair of the resident forum. 
Okay. I love it. That That's a great message. And hopefully with this podcast and, and other areas will help to get that message out because it is very important. It was, it was really interesting get, getting to know you a little bit more. I appreciate your time today. Dr. Amanda Herman, thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure, Dennis. Great big thanks to Dr. Amanda Herman. I've got a trailer for you right now of another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Had to do so much research about what these clinical things meant you know, what these different cords and tubes coming out of people were, because I didn't know the difference between like an inner osseous line when, you know, and, and something else. And so I had a lot of learning to do. So the first couple months were a little rough and I was like, what have I signed myself up for? Yeah. But then once I kind of got over that learning curve, it was probably about three or four months in when I just realized I loved waking up and I loved going to work. And I was I would walk to work up this big hill because OHSU is on, on top of a hill. And I would just be walking to work, listening to my music, being like, I'm excited to go do my job today. And when I had that realization, I said, I'm never leaving pathology. To hear more from Dr. Phoebe Hammer as she talks about her experience in the pathology post-sophomore fellowship, check out episode 92. Okay, this one was a lot of fun. I loved hearing the excitement and the passion in Dr. Herman's voice as she was talking about transfusion medicine and the CAP and all of the other things that she's doing. And I think it's great to know that it's people like her who are the future leaders in pathology. If you are a pathology resident or a medical student interested in pathology, I hope you found this episode useful and interesting. And if you're not a pathology resident, as I am not, you can still learn some things from this conversation, like getting over setbacks, getting involved in professional organizations, and being open to new opportunities. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.